Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. Content warning for this episode, discussions of suicide. So what is the topic of discussion today and where are we headed? So today we're talking about another pesticide, which we haven't spoken about, I don't think, on the main channel specifically, but we've talked about it like a number of times on Patreon and I've alluded to it a couple of times here and there, I think. And we're going back to Japan in the 1980s. Let's go. Let's go. So, on April 30th, 1985, Haruo Otsu was leaving for a fishing trip and decided to stop beforehand for drinks at a vending machine in Tokyo. He bought a bottle of vitamin-rich health drink Aronimin C, but when he reached into the dispenser, he found two bottles. At the time, the Otsuko company which produced Aronimin C was doing a promotional deal where sometimes people would get two bottles of the drink when they purchased one from a vending machine, and it was just sort of a gambling like marketing gimmick. Mm-hmm. Like maybe get buy two or buy one get one free. Possibly, yeah. Possibly. But sometimes people didn't want the second one, like when we all got the free U2 album and not everybody wanted that. <laughs> and so they would leave their second drink on top of the vending machine as just like a pay-it-forward act of kindness. Like, here's a free drink. You don't oh, want yours. Okay. Yeah. Now, halfway through drinking his second bottle on his trip, Haruo began to feel sick. And a couple of hours later, he was taken to a hospital in his hometown of Tondabayashi. And the next night, he died. Between April 30th and November 17th, 35 people were poisoned and 12 people total died, including 52-year-old Haruo Otsu, a 12-year-old boy, a 30-year-old farmer, a 44-year-old woman, and a man named Takashi Sakai who became violently ill within 30 minutes of drinking an Aronimin C and died after suffering in the hospital for six weeks. So this is like a mass poisoning situation? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. And it wasn't the first time in recent history that Japan specifically had been victimized by product tampering. In the mm. spring of 1984, a group identifying as the monster with 21 faces tried to extort the Morinaga Corp and three other candy manufacturers by lacing chocolates and candy with cyanide. The monster then put these candy on the shelves with labels that said contains poison, and so no one was hurt. But, I mean, they were still putting them on the shelves. Putting like anybody, it on the shelves, right. Anybody could have grabbed them. And then the group sent a letter to the police in early 1985 to let them know they weren't going to poison candy anymore, which, like, I this don't is know. It's, it's odd to be like, we're not going to do it anymore, but it's also like, would I trust that, or are they just, like, leveling up? But, right. but they actually were, like, they actually did stop with their poisoning. Like, whatever protests they were doing was over. Hmm. But then there was a bad batch of wine that was imported by Austria, and it had antifreeze added to it as a preservative. The Japanese, Is that a thing? 
it's not supposed to be a thing that's super illegal <laughs> like okay i was like is this like a like a, a standard in practice like standard practice of adding antifreeze as a preservative that i don't know about luckily no luckily no and so the okay Jap okay okay the japanese government removed the wine from the stores but the importer in japan named man's wine co mixed the wine in with domestic wine so that they wouldn't have to take a loss on the import. So they were just mixing this <laughs> antifreeze wine into their, yeah. Just yeah. diluting it, essentially. Yeah. And luckily, no serious injuries were reported from this either. But still, it's like they've had a lot of health scares, and now there's these 35 mm -hmm. people in Japan who've been poisoned. And all of the people poisoned in Japan at this time, except one, were found to have been poisoned with Paraquat, while the outlier was poisoned with Diaquat. They were in bottles of Veronimin C, which had been tampered with by an unknown individual taking advantage of the marketing gimmick, but other bottles were also poisoned and left near the vending machine, including Coca-Cola and real gold. So Paraquat, what they had been poisoned with, is a pesticide and herbicide which was developed in the 1950s and was first used commercially in the 1960s. It functions by disrupting cell membranes and interfering with photosynthesis on contact with plants. So it's a lot like how Agent Orange was supposed to be mm -hmm. um, in terms of its defoliant capabilities. Yep. And it causes them to visibly wilt and die within a few hours. And it does this by inhibiting the conversion of NADP to NADPH, which is just a coenzyme that helps with metabolism that I'm sure everybody who just finished up with their chemistry finals like is real triggered right now by hearing those letters. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> and this is similar to the mechanism of toxicity for this pesticide in humans, which we'll get to later. But the way that it acts on plants is similar. Unlike some other pesticides, though, Paraquat rapidly deactivates upon contact with soil, so there's no bioaccumulation. So there's a benefit in that way. However, okay. when ingested orally or usually via inhalation during spraying of Paraquat, it's extremely likely to be fatal. It's super mm -hmm. fatal. So... Despite the immediate danger that these tamperings were posing to their customers, the Japan Soft Drink Bottlers Association chose not to adjust the packaging of the bottles to be tamper-resistant, as was done only a couple years earlier during the 1982 Tylenol poisonings. Rather, a spokesperson for the association said that since the seal on the screw cap needed to be broken on the bottles for tamperings to have occurred, the producers didn't actually need to do anything, and instead, consumers needed to be more cautious. Mm. Right? Seven people died during the Tylenol poisonings, and it's considered one of the most notorious cases of tampering in the world. And yet, they pushed back after the death of 12 people. And this was because they tried to argue that the deaths were more likely suicides rather than murder. Interesting. So they they were trying to just completely flip the script here and say they, that it was something that it was not. Yes, yes. And the reason they did this, I think specifically, is because Paraquat was fairly often used for suicide. Paraquat was used for 1,402 suicides in Japan alone the year before in 1984. And Japan wasn't alone because globally around 20% of suicides are carried out via self-poisoning with pesticides and that's like that's a number that is active even today because a lot of mm. the low-income countries have easy access to pesticides and a lot of the higher-income countries use firearms or hanging is mm. usually how we kill ourselves so 
1984, it was actually a particularly common way to attempt suicide, especially in Asian countries in Latin America. Right, but like, I mean, a 12-year-old boy. I know. It's such a stretch. It's Like, such a stretch. Yeah. okay. But they were still like, well, you know, paraquats usually used to kill themselves, so it's not on us. These people are choosing to do this, which like, god damn, what an argument. So the manufacturers knew this, and the manufacturers of paraquat also knew that it was dangerous and often used for suicide. In 1964, only two years after Paraquat was on the global market for commercial agriculture in a product called Gramoxone made by the Imperial Chemical Industries, there were already reported poisonings in Ireland and New Zealand. Soon thereafter, suicides accounted for the majority of Paraquat deaths globally. Part of the reason for these high rates of suicide is because there is no antidote for, for paraquat exposure, and thus the fatality rate for known exposures is estimated to be as high as 70%. Wow. By the mid-80s, Japan was seeing more than 1,000 deaths a year from gramoxone alone. Not all of them, of course, were intentional, as was the case worldwide, because a kid could easily ingest a small amount in, like, a water bottle that was used to spray rather than a huge spraying device. And Sure. you could die pretty quickly and painfully from this because the estimated LD50 is a mere 30 to 35 milligrams per kilogram. It's about a mouthful. That's it. That's it. And you're done. And that's Yeah. a 20% solution because I don't think they ever put anything higher than 24% on the market. Oh, wow. So, So if it was like in its full blown, like it would take like a dropper, like oh, a drop, like yeah, essentially. it, yeah, it's, Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean, God, I don't even know what it would do to plants, just melt them and as opposed Right. Just turn them into dust. Like, yeah. to, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So even according to a 1987 internal document from the Imperial Chemical Industries, or ICI, they addressed their, quote, paraquat poisoning problem, and they recognized that the mouthful could result in death, and then they also noted that low doses induced prolonged and unpleasant death from lung fibrosis because of the inhalational exposure, usually. But at higher levels, as would be expected in a suicide attempt, higher even than oral ingestion accidentally, of course, death occurs more quickly following multiple organ failure. It's a terrible Mm -hmm. way to go. Oh, yeah, that's fucked. But what they failed to mention is that paraquat is caustic and corrodes the GI tract when ingested orally, which leads to mucosal lesions in the mouth and a symptom called paraquat tongue that presents within a few days if you survive that long. And this causes ulcers on your tongue that bleed and it can, they can also develop in the esophagus and lead to esophageal perforation. Oh, fuck. Yeah, it sounds <laughs> awful. this is awful. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. The chemical isn't readily absorbed in the stomach and instead perfuses into the lungs, kidneys, liver, and muscles. Paraquat generates a superoxide anion, which is something that usually helps aerobic organisms to signal processes like apoptosis. But in cases of toxins, these force the production of anions and more toxic reactive oxygen species, which are known to cause cancer, are formed. So now you have these free radicals, and that's what like blueberries and antioxidants and shit are supposed to like... help with but you know it's not going to be on this level obviously <laughs> we'll talk about free radicals some other time but essentially they're linked to developing cancer later on down the road 
More immediately, though, the oxygenated species cause oxidative damage to the liver, and then renal failure can develop quickly and is completely irreversible. Yeah, this is all happening so quickly. Like, Mm-hmm. that sounds like such a terrible way to go. It is. It is. Yeah, not not in not in my top tier ways No, to go. no. No. Like, No. I mean, as we said before, we've said before, like, people can do whatever they want with their lives. But, like, I don't recommend this. This sounds awful. Yeah. Like, it, it, Fuck that. it, it burns on the way down. And then, like, you just, you can spend hours or weeks just, like, Yeah, languishing. that's what I was going to say. Like, that one guy, six weeks in the hospital, fuck. Yeah. Like, going through multiple organ failure? No, thank you. No, thank you. Yeah, I don't recommend this one, friends. Maybe take Mm -mm. a nap and see if you feel better after that. Yeah. Talk <laughs> to a friend. yeah. Get a pet. The product manufacturers weren't going to do anything. And so what the Japanese authorities decided to do in response to the tampering after, you know, all of these people experienced all of these upper-level poisonings, you know, because I'm sure they drank quite a bit. It, it wasn't like a low-level exposure for most of them. So what they decided to do in 1985 was print sticker warnings to put onto vending machines, which read that, you know, you should check the dispensing bin Mm hmm. <laughs> the before, zeal. right, and that you should avoid drinking any of the abandoned drinks that people leave behind. And then they handed out leaflets through the city that warned people more generally, like, hey, there's something going on with the vending machines. Huh. There was brief consideration given to stricter monitoring of the vending machines, but nothing really happened with that. And this is mostly because video surveillance wasn't, like, great or widespread in the 80s. Sure, sure. But also because Japan had 5.2 million vending machines that were at risk of this tampering. So there's no way you Yeah, can watch they're them everywhere. all. Yeah. They're everywhere, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, that's not a likely solution. Yeah, Yeah. sure. So instead, vending machine operators were asked to, like, check the contents of their machines, and then drugstores and re retailers of herbicides and other poisons were asked to keep an eye out for suspicious purchases. Because at this point, they are still using the 24% solution, and it's not being restricted, really. Like, it's not restricted to, com Right. to commercial use or anything. And then, of course, there were the copycats. So copycats left tainted containers of milk at the Mai Prefecture schools in central Japan in December of 1985. But luckily, I don't think anyone was hurt in this copycat case. Mm. And then eventually, the Otsuka company did change the type of bottle cap on the Aronimen C bottles. And the vending machine poisoning stopped, not because of the bottles, probably because of the stickers. And just everybody knew that there was poisonings happening. But the perpetrator was never identified. This is still, like, an unsolved case. An open case, Mm yeah. hmm And in 2001, Japan abolished their statute of limitations for murder, meaning that if the poisoner or poisoners are ever caught, they can still be prosecuted for this. Interesting. I mean, it's funny that they, if you're thinking about the poisoner, like, why wouldn't they just, they just stopped, didn't they? Like, this Yeah, didn't, they just stopped. wasn't an ongoing, yeah, they just stopped, because I was going to say, like, they would just move on to a different drink that doesn't have a, you know, a different type of bottle cap or something. Mm -hmm. But it seems it was just a short-lived little adventure that they had, Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Like, Yeah, poisoning let me 35 poison people. people. Yeah, poison. That's enough. That's enough. I'll stop now. Right, right. Like, And huh. so this was kind of a short case in itself. I couldn't find a whole lot, maybe because a lot of the sources are like in Japanese and they just weren't coming up in my search, but there's just not a whole lot about this. But while I was digging into it, I found 
more about Paraquat because I was like, why was it so easy to get something that was like Mm this toxic? This deadly, yeah. And so it turns out that even though there's a crime in itself with people literally poisoning someone, there was a crime behind the scenes with the manufacturer of Paraquat, with ICI. Do tell. (laughs) So ICI sought, again, a solution to their problem with Paraquat, where people are killing themselves and such a problem to us. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They decided to look for a solution in 1968, well before any of these poisonings in Japan. And they determined that adding an emetic to gramoxone would be the best idea, much like how solutions of ethanol for, like, cleaning are denatured with methanol to keep people from drinking it, which, by the way, doesn't work. It just poisons people in a different way. We kind of talked about it (laughs) on Patreon. We'll probably talk about it again. (laughs) Not a good idea. But they were, this was more like them saying, like, let's add Epicac to it, you know? And there's a lot of things, I think, that have emetics added to them. But... At this time, 1968, ICI decided that it was too expensive to add anything else to their gramoxone solution. Mm. Okay. And so they kept saying, okay, we have a problem. What about the Semitic? No. Okay. Is there no problem? No, there's still a problem. What about the Semitic? No. So they kept going back and forth, and they did that a couple but, times. But, but never did anything about it. But they never did anything about it. And people kept dying from ingestion of their pesticide, like thousands of people every year. Like, it was a big deal with this specific product. It wasn't until the US EPA considered removing Gromoxone from the market in 1975 because they were so concerned about its rampant lethality that the ICI decided to do something. And they just kind of like heard about this being a possibility. They weren't warned about it. And two weeks after they learned about the EPA's plan to cancel the production and sale of Paraquat, they suddenly began adding an emetic. Easy peasy, (laughs) we have an emetic now. And this emetic was called PP-796. I don't think it was ever used for anything else commercially, and so it was never given a fancy name. It was a drug that was used for the treatment of asthma, but one of the side effects was that it induced vomiting. So, like, not a great asthma treatment drug. Not a great asthma. I was just going to say that does not, like, well, I can breathe, but now I'm throwing up. Yeah, like, I, can, I can breathe when I'm not gagging. Gagging, yeah. Like, I can breathe between the heaving. Yeah. Like, ugh. <laughs> So ICI determined that they would add 0.05% PP796 by volume to the gramoxone, as well as a blue dye and a stenching agent. What's that? So a stenching agent is just something that smells bad. So Gotcha. It's like bright blue. It doesn't look like food. I mean, it probably kind of looks like candy, but it's bright blue. It smells terrible and it makes you throw up. So they're like, okay, that that should be it. That should, yeah, that should do the trick. And then what they decided to do was take the next step – because capitalism, and they patented the emetic that allowed them to show regulators they were serious about preventing deaths, but it also made it so that they essentially cornered the market on a safe paraquat solution because mm. now the regulators were saying, do you have this emetic? Mm. And eventually... To the other paraquat manufacturers. Right, right. Gotcha, gotcha, and, gotcha. And eventually the Food and Agricultural Association of the UN, or the FAO, required that 0.05% PP796 be in all solutions of Paraquat as an international standard for pesticides. But unfortunately, the inclusion of PP796 did not make gramoxone any safer. (laughs) But let's make sure that we use it. (laughs) Everybody has to have it. It doesn't work, but everybody get on board. 
All of the research done regarding the emetic effects of PP796 were done in the 60s and 70s and were recorded on microfiche, which was referenced to determine the 0.05% amount. However, no original human research was done in the 80s, and all of the original records had been destroyed. So there's no going back to look at them. And all they had to work on was done in dogs and monkeys, from which senior scientist at ICI named Michael Rose extrapolated his number for humans, a number that he estimated would be lower than for animals because he said that humans would be more sensitive to it. But based mm. on what? Like, what? Right. Based on what? You're, you weren't looking at humans. You didn't do your own original research. You're just, like, literally drawing a curve and saying, here's dogs and here's pigs, and I think... Humans fall Humans somewhere. Humans are here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's li- like throwing darts at a board going here. <laughs> right about here. Fucking basically. And, and so, and it wasn't working. Like, because wouldn't it still have its caustic effects on the mouth? Yes. Even with the emetic? Like, yes. Yes. Yeah, right. that, that won't like, stop it. And so, yeah. like, I don't, I don't know that... I just don't know how it was being reported because for deaths were still being reported. And we are getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but I will answer your question. <laughs> deaths were still being reported. But I think that, like, the FAO wasn't, like, getting that data or something. They're just like, well, mm. there's an emetic in it. It must be safer. But internally, there was still issues. So there was a colleague at Chevron Chemical who was a manufacturer and distributor of ICI's Paraquat. And he pointed out, because he was on the inside and was working with it, that the mm-hmm. available animal, the available human studies of ingestion of PP796 showed that no one had vomited in the 15-minute window they were expected to. Like, they were uh, given PP796. And literally they, nobody puked. They just waited. And <laughs> then this same scientist, Dr. Richard Cavalli, he didn't think that the EPA would even accept the addition of PP796 based on the data. And initially, he was actually correct because nothing okay. was happening with the Semitic. So in 1977, an EPA chemist wrote to Chevron and said that, quote, there are better ways of inducing vomiting, tickling the throat with a finger, for example. <laughs> but by 1978, ICI was selling Gramoxone with PP796 Semitic in other countries, you know, international under the FAO, mm-hmm. in hopes that it would encourage the U.S. regulators to choose to help keep Paraquat for sale, ideally with their preparation. In 1981, hmm. ICI scientists, internal scientists, had enough data to write in a company memo that, quote, at best, only a few people have survived paraquat <laughs> poisoning because of the inclusion of this emetic. And that, quote, the early onset of emesis after ingestion of paraquat does not play a part in reducing mortality. Further. Yeah, it's still fucking caustic. Oh, further. Oh, <laughs> further. God. Well, and if you want to read this, this is something that ICI chemist Peter Slade wrote. It is important that undue hope should not be raised for what PP796 can achieve toxicologically, and equally that registration authorities not be actively misled into thinking that the emetic formulation will quote-unquote solve the paraquat problem. I know! (laughs) So now you have all this internal stuff and everybody internally is like, this isn't working, this is not working, and then everybody up top basically is like, but it's working in other countries. So, yeah. (laughs) And then somehow, nobody wants to point figures and figure out how they got this, but the EPA received information from someone 
that enabled them to conclude that there was not available data to suggest that Paraquat sold with the Chevron ICI preparation should be banned, and so Paraquat was returned to its normal registration process with the EPA in 1982. Hmm. In 1984, okay. <laughs> another ICI scientist suggested that the PP796 be increased by fivefold in order to induce vomiting within five minutes of ingestion of gramoxone, and that would help to avoid absorption and exposure, you know, because it can't permeate through the body and get into the muscles and the lungs. But this wasn't done. The following year... Do you think... Well, do you think it would have worked if they increased... Like, if they increased it? Because I... What do you think? I want to know what you I think. don't think so. Why? I don't think so. Because it's already, like, soaked up in the bloodstream enough. Like, Uh-huh. it's lethal enough. Uh-huh. Like... I think that if it's in your system for five minutes, like, the deed is done. I don't know. I like the way you think. I think you've heard a couple of episodes of this podcast, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get to what I think. Don't worry. I have a whole okay. rage that I have at the end. <laughs> so the following year, Japan is terrorized with the Iranian sea poisonings, and consumers were blamed for their own injuries and deaths at the hands of a perpetrator who was never identified. But no one was really wanting to do anything to save their lives. ICI maintained in internal documentation that many of the reported accidents were actually suicides, which indicated a greater amount was ingested than in a genuine accident, and that suicide was more of a social issue than anything, which wouldn't be solved by withdrawing Paraquat from the market. Yeah, yeah. Even despite their own chemists' findings about the efficacy of PP796, In their internal memos three years later, they still reported that it helped to reduce mortality. And of course, this is just because of profits. They didn't want Paraquat Right. to be pulled from the market, but they also didn't want to have to change the formulation of their product in any way. And they pitched this as being concerned for the integrity of their products for the farmers who used it. But in reality, they just didn't want to lose profits because in a 1987 memo, they stated that diluting the solution would increase packaging costs and as a result would decrease profits because farmers would be less likely to use it at a diluted concentration that they would need more of at a greater cost. Unsurprisingly, considering that in 1987 ICI was selling Paraquat products under different names and with different formulations in 140 countries, and resulting in 15,000 tons of Paraquat being sold worldwide, they were Holy earning, shit. yeah, they were earning approximately 200 million pounds or 376 million dollars, and this is in 1987 Holy dollars. shit. Yeah, that's... Yeah. That's... They don't want to mess with the cash cow. They really don't. And then comes John Halings. He was an ICI junior scientist in 1990 and was working to reduce the lethality of the Paraquat products, despite that they're maintaining in documentation that it's not lethal, but suicide's more of a social issue thing, whatever. Right. He's looking at Michael Rose's old data that he used to justify the 0.05 PP796 value. You know, the one that was used Mm on hmm non-original studies from pigs and dogs and not humans. Beyond what I've already told you about that poor science and that poor use of the curve, Haling also realized that Rose had essentially cherry-picked data, and that even according to Rose's own calculations, a reasonable amount of PP796 to add to gramoxone for efficacy would be 10 times more 
than has been added to it since 1976. Oh my god. And this is even The if first we're... time a person looks into it. Uh, right. <laughs> like, the first time somebody checks this guy's math. Yeah. Like... And of course, he was still approximating how closely people were like pigs, and he knew he was underestimating the amount needed to stop thousands of people from dying from accidents and suicide attempts. And it's very likely he underestimated this because of profit margins, because PP-796 costs eight times more to produce than Paraquat by volume. Mm. But this only means that per liter of Paraquat, they would have had to pay 63 cents more to increase the safety of their product in 1990. That's literally nothing when you're raking in $376 million. I know. I know. <laughs> Interestingly, the company did not suffer significant financial losses when, the year after the Aronimans sea poisonings, Japan suspended the sale of 24% Paraquat and replaced it with a Paraquat Diquat solution that was only 4% Paraquat and 4% Diquat, and this was called Preglox. This is also despite the fact that Diquat, like PP796, is more expensive to produce than Paraquat, and they're putting it in at 4%. Like, mm. it's so easy. It's so easy. They're so close. Like, <laughs> like, they're almost there. <laughs> and after Hailing reported his findings on Gramoxone to his superiors, he did work on an improved version of Gramoxone called Gramoxo-Intion that contained what he approximated was an appropriate level of emetic. And this was still based on animals, so still not great, but it was still more. Like, he was trying mm -hmm. his best to make a safe product. Right. Like he he was he was he had good intentions. He this guy, had, it seems. yes. This one guy he did, had the yes. This one he <laughs> had the best of intentions. Like, maybe maybe a couple of the others who were like, hey, this isn't working out, but also this guy. Yeah. More importantly, maybe than the emetic though, is that he added an agent which would cause the contents of the stomach to congeal so that the body couldn't absorb the paraquat. Mm, okay, okay. So following the release of Gramoxo-Intion, there was a 2008 study in Sri Lanka that suggested that this formulation was marginally safer. But I will point out that this study was designed, funded, and led by Syngenta, which is the parent company now of ICI. So that's oh. a little sus. Yeah. And there were I did see I did see some of the authors that had I had seen in other independent studies of Paraquat, but it's like this is still being funded and designed and led by the people who have by an the creator in making the Intion version look better. Yeah. Yeah. Also, when you look into their data, their findings were that maybe thirty more people survived Intion over standard Gramoxone. Gramoxone over whatever period of time they were looking at. I think it was like three years or something. And they were including possible and probable ingestions of gramoxone in their study, which maybe makes it seem like that could just be attributed to not knowing completely if Paraquat paid a role in the situations where those 30 people survived. Mm. So I don't know. I'm a little suspicious of that data. Oh, yeah. So between 1994 and 2000, that's when ICI demerged and remerged and named itself Syngenta, which identifies itself as the first global group focusing exclusively on agribusiness. Hmm. And Syngenta maintains publicly that product safety is important to them and they never prioritized profits over people, nor did they ever fabricate or misrepresent data. They claimed the inclusion of the emetic, the dye, and the stenching agent helped to address the problem. 
But then it's like, why did you create the NT on then? Like later on. Right. They also added labeling to discourage improper paraquat use and storage, and they helped to train some 42 million farmers on proper use and storage. Furthermore, Almost all modern innovations, buildings, bridges, railways, pharmaceuticals, automobiles, machines, and crop protection products have been used for suicide. We believe that society needs to address the root cause and focus on mental health issues, not deprive the world of important technology, which has improved overall human well-being. <laughs> thoughts, thoughts on that one? I mean, they're basically saying, like, we need to make suicide not a problem because you can kill yourself so many different ways. <laughs> like, why are you going to single us out? Why are you? Yeah. Like, that's what it, that's what I'm hearing. <laughs> like, like, I, I mean, like look at all of these other ways you could kill yourself. And yet people are allowed to drive a car and walk on a bridge. Well, and it's as if we haven't made buildings, railways, pharmaceuticals, and cars safer and harder to kill yourself with. Like, Yes, like there are literally like bridges that like have posts up, like, like, and have fences up and have yeah. like, like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So obviously this is just a disingenuous argument to pass yeah. the buck on mental health. Yeah. But when the method of injury is made more difficult to access, which should be a surprise to nobody, it prevents accidents, suicides, and homicides. Like, if you don't have access to it, you can't kill people with it as easily. Right. Like, and wouldn't you want your product to be safer? Wouldn't you? Like, wouldn't they, you? <laughs> like... They don't because it means fewer people are buying it. Yeah. And we have data on this because after the suspension of the 24% paraquat solution to the lower percent solution with diquat in 1986, sales of paraquat and diquat both fell. And this was probably because consumers were also forced to show ID and sign their name in a registry when purchasing the chemicals. So th they mm -hmm. fell because they were harder to access. And mm -hmm. nobody wants their you know profits to fall, even if it means people aren't going out and killing themselves. Mm-hmm. Between 1986 and 2019 in Japan, there was a 92% reduction in deaths from parasite poisonings overall. And this was including organophosphate and carbamate pesticides, but there were only 67 other pesticide deaths in 2019. And that's generally where paraquat gets kind of like pushed into is with other gotcha. pesticides. So it's like from 1,000 in 1984 to 67, like... That's a nice reduction. That's that's a huge reduction. <laughs> yeah. And it's likely that the restrictions on sales are more likely to have been what helped reduce deaths than the change of formulation. Because even the 4% paraquat solution still has a 70 to 80% fatality rate because there's no antidote for it. So if you're... Right. And refresh my memory, did they add the the substance that would make it congeal? in your stomach did they end up adding that that was gramoxone intion and this is pre-gloss oh gotcha it's a gotcha, bunch gotcha, of different gotcha. products yeah okay okay a 2017 systematic review by the lancet found that in 16 countries which experienced total bans on pesticide sales all but one country experienced decreased numbers of suicides from pesticide ingestion and that country was greece but they're a higher income country so their deaths by pesticides were probably lower overall mm. and so if they didn't see mm -hmm. a decreased number in pesticides it's probably because they just didn't have that many to begin with but in sri lanka there was an estimated 93,000 suicides prevented in the 20 years leading up to 2015 
And in South Korea, there was more than a 50% decrease in pesticide suicides in the three years following their ban. Wow. Yeah, so if you don't, like, make it super easy to kill yourself with something, people don't right. tend to kill themselves that way. Right. Also, according to The Lancet and the information upon which they initiated their 2017 study... First, if a means of suicide is not immediately accessible at the moment of suicidal crisis, suicidal feelings might subside before alternative means can be accessed. Second, people deterred from using one method of suicide might instead use a less lethal alternative, thereby increasing the chances of survival. Less than 10% of people who survive a suicide attempt go on to take their lives at a later date. Third, if a method is less frequently used, it might be less likely to be reported in the media, thereby reducing the cognitive availability of the method. Right. So make it less prevalent and people are less mm -hmm. likely to kill themselves with it. Like, it's right. not that hard. Right. And one of the places that has not put many restrictions on it is, of course, the United States. More than 10 million pounds of Paraquat were sprayed on corn, soybeans, grapes, and other fruits and vegetables in 2018 in the United States. And according to a USGS survey data, Paraquat use has been on the rise since 2013. It's not super readily accessible in the United States as it is in some countries because it can only be purchased by pseudified applicators, so like farmers using it. Like agriculture, like commercial agricultural use. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, right? Like I can't go into my Home Depot and buy some Paraquat. Exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. And it is mostly prohibited for aerial application, but it's like oh, it's still allowed at some level, though. That that's awesome. Mm -hmm. And there's additional safety information on the label, but overall, I think the studies I was reading was saying that like the safety information doesn't really do a whole lot. It might keep that farmer from like storing it in an improper bottle but it's not mm -hmm. going to keep like a kid who can't read from you know ingesting it on accident or right wants to kill themselves like you have to make it inaccessible you can't just put on a carton of cigarettes that this will kill you because nobody cares <laughs> right like, but yeah <laughs> right. that's kind of the point <laughs> <laughs> but the u.s has not banned paraquat entirely because the federal insecticide fungicide and rodenticide act uses a cost benefit analysis a la jack's company and fight club that allows the <laughs> epa to overlook the harms of a pesticide like paraquat if it provides significant economic benefit and paraquat is considered to be extremely beneficial because it can kill weeds which have grown resistant to other pesticides like roundup mm. so in 2018 Haling had already left ICI at this point, I think, and he went on to get his doctorate in toxicology. And he, okay. dis he discovered that ICI, or Syngenta at this point, was still misrepresenting data to make it seem safer, and the FAO of the UN was still using the PP796 at the 0.05% level as the standard for safety, despite the fact that he went to his superiors and was like, this is not standard whatsoever. And I think what's important is the misrepresentation because you asked me what do you think about this earlier so this is what i think about this we've already talked about how using emetics for gastric decontamination in the epicac episode like it's not mm -hmm. recommended anymore if it's caustic going down it's going to be caustic coming back up right and that's kind of what you it's were just going to cause more damage it's yeah. just going to cause more damage and syngenta has used this to 
make a counter argument against hailing and they wrote to the intercept where sharon Lerner did some reporting on paraquat as well and they said that quote today imminent medical experts advise against hyematic levels based on concerns that they can increase toxicity medical opinion has evolved in the 30 years since john first worked on this product and yeah it has but it but it doesn't mean that like in the 70s they were doing right 30 years ago they knew they were doing shady science right and they will and not to and not to forget how long they were just like let's just not do anything yeah <laughs> like yeah also do not forget that like right. it's gonna be too <laughs> it's expensive. not like they were super interested in finding a solution in the fucking first place but. right so yeah i don't necessarily think that the emetic is the solution i think what is more criminal is that they knew thousands of people were dying from their product and they didn't want to do anything at all to make exactly. it exactly exactly yeah. like they literally did nothing mm -hmm. they literally were just like it, it was like they're they were thinking how long can we get away with this right yeah because money is great and we'd <laughs> like more of that please we would like more of it yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you said that there's not an antidote but what can facilitate recovery if anything well a complete recovery is possible if less than 20 milligrams per kilogram is ingested. So a pretty small amount would be survivable if the victim received proper airway management and decontamination, gastric lavage, possible intubation, hemodialysis, and if the inflammatory response that could lead to lung fibrosis is suppressed, which is a lot of ifs. Like, this is not something you want to fuck around with. Right. Like, that's a huge if and also, like, I imagine that you would have to get this help pretty quickly, pretty quickly in order for it to have full effect. Yeah, yeah. And there could still be long-lasting consequences of exposure, even if you survive this exposure. So individuals exposed via inhalation can develop lung scarring and have pulmonary issues for years following a survived exposure or just like a low, you know, chronic exposure. But there's also neurological issues associated with low-level exposure. As of December of 2022, there were 2,352 plaintiffs in the federal multi-district litigation class action lawsuit against Syngenta because they had developed Parkinson's disease as a result of exposure of Paraquat, specifically exposure to Glamoxone. In fact, so many plaintiffs were being added to the lawsuit every month that they had to postpone the Bellwether test trial until October of 2023 so that they could finish putting together lists and depositions of expert witnesses. And evidence of a correlation between Paraquat exposure and Parkinson's first emerged in 1985 publicly when a Canadian neurologist named Andre Barbeau found that farmers as young as 32 were starting to exhibit symptoms of a neurodegenerative disorder. And a 1990 study found that not only was there a strong connection between exposure and Parkinson's, but that the people who had been exposed were actually six times more likely than non-exposed people to develop the disease. And this is what actually led to the EU banning Paraquat for use as a pesticide in 2007. Paraquat is banned in China and Switzerland as well, and this is where Syngenta and its parent company, ChemChina, are headquartered. So hmm. they, they can't even use it. Use it in their headquarters. Yeah, yeah. And the EU... That's will, crazy. Yeah, the EU will produce it and export it, but they won't use it there. Huh. 
But what's worse is that internal documentation from Syngenta shows that they knew about the connection between Paraquat and Parkinson's and that they covered it up. Ugh. And of course, of course they fucking did. Of course. They, why am I? Why am I going to act surprised? I'm not I'm not even I'm not surprised at this. Like at, I've been doing this show long enough to, that I should not be fucking surprised by this. Of course. <laughs> of course they covered it up. And actually, like, even after all of this, like, all of the studies came out and even with the trial that's coming up, they still deny that there's even a connection between Parkinson's disease and their products. They completely mm. deny it. I think it's really interesting that they will not, it's like, they will not shit where they eat. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. you that's know what I'm really saying? Telling. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's really telling. <laughs> like, yeah, we'll make it, but we're not using that here. Mm -mm. <laughs> That's no, thank here. you. No, not send, no, thank you. Send it off to some of those poor countries that buy a ton of it. Yeah, yeah that's crazy. Yeah. Wow. So that's it. There were, you know, 12 people dead among thousands of people killed accidentally or intentionally by Paraquat since the 60s. The Euronymous Sea Poisoner was never found and no one's really taken the blame for any of the deaths. Yay, capitalism. <laughs> The biggest criminal of all. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us everywhere you get your podcasts. For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Tumblr, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Bina Stainenko. Stay safe and remember, the dose makes the poison. <laughs>